Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all of those who are worshiping with us online this morning. We're so grateful that you have joined us today. And I also want to welcome the venue service meeting right down the hall and uh, Reach Church DeSoto. So grateful for what God is doing there and grateful for Pastor Ryan and Pastor Josh. We love you guys and grateful that you're joining us uh, as well. And then I want to let you know about something that's occurring tonight. Uh, We're having an ordination service for Pastor Travis Bryant at Fellowship Olathe this evening. And so many of you know uh, Pastor Travis and his wife, Jessica. They were members here for many years. And uh, then they went out with uh, Pastor Dane to Fellowship Olathe to begin that new work out there. And uh, Pastor Travis, having sensed God's call to ministry, came to us as a church body. And tonight we'll have an opportunity to affirm the call that God has placed on his life. It's a good reminder that we as a church, we do not call men to ministry. God calls men to ministry. What the church does is we have an opportunity to affirm the call that God has placed on their life. In other words, we're able to say to the world uh, that this is not some young man just running off on his own doing whatever he wants to do. No, we affirm the call that God has placed on his life. And so tonight we'll have an opportunity to challenge him, to be able to pray over him. And that will be at Fellowship Olathe tonight at 5 p.m. be a great opportunity to just rejoice in what God is doing. And maybe you've not been out to Fellowship Olathe, and if you don't got anything going on at 5 o'clock, you get to see Fellowship Olathe and what God's doing there. We'd love to have you join us. Well, this morning, Genesis 39, as we continue this walk through the book of Genesis, we're seeing God for who he is. We're seeing God as he accomplishes his purposes. Despite the sinfulness of man, despite the even evil intentions of man, despite even the, 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 the sinfulness of his own men and women that he's raising up, his purposes will not be stopped. He's sovereign over every circumstance and every situation, and he's marching along with his purposes in history. And then we also see God molding and shaping men and women for his purposes through whom uh, he performs his work. And we're seeing that in Joseph's life as well. When we come to Genesis 39, this is the text that, that most people jump to whenever you talk about dealing or resisting temptation. And we're going to talk about that some this morning. But this chapter's about a whole lot more than just resisting temptation. This is about God molding uh, this man, Joseph, into who uh, he has him to be. And if you've read ahead, if you've read this chapter, as I did many times this week, the one thing that sticks out to you is all of a sudden you, you begin to see the mentioning of God's covenantal name. In fact, eight times in this chapter, you'll see that covenant name, Lord, it should be in all caps in your translation. That's Yahweh. That's God's covenantal name. And, and up to this point, especially in Joseph, Joseph's life, we've not really seen God written into the story in an explicit way. Certainly God's invisible hand has been working in all the circumstances. But now all of a sudden, in a very explicit way, we see God mentioning his name. And we see the bookends of this chapter is this phrase that the Lord was with them. And you'd almost assume that moving forward, the floodgates would open, and now we'd see the mentioning of God's covenantal name many, many times as we move throughout the end of this book. But it's really not the case. 
It's almost as if God stops right here and he wants to get our attention and say to us, there's something that you've got to see here that I'm not going to repeat again. But you've got to get this one thing. You've got to understand this, that all that we see Joseph accomplish and all that he goes through and all that he endures and all that he will become, there's only one real explanation for all of it. And it's that the Lord was with him. I really feel, the more I say this, the more you just sense almost God saying, don't get too enamored with Joseph. Great guy. But the explanation for all of it is that the Lord was with him. No more encouraging statement in all of God's word. No greater statement could be made of any of us than for somebody to say about us, the Lord is with him. Or the Lord is with her. It's a profound statement. It's an encouraging statement. And I would submit to you this morning, quite honestly, it's the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters is the fragrance of the Lord's presence permeating everything we do. But the question is, what does that mean? What does it look like to to be a man or a woman who abides in the presence of God? I think Joseph's going to give us some indicators of what that looks like. Let's pray together, then then we'll divide this this chapter up into three sections, and we'll work our way through it. Father, we ask you to bless the study of your word this morning. God, even this week as I have prayed, I am woefully inadequate to be able to preach this text. God, we need you to speak this morning. We need you to preach by means of your word. So God, we ask that you would bless only your word today. And I pray that it would go forth in power. And in these these brief moments that we have, God, speak to us by means of your word and help us to, to better understand today what it means to abide in the presence of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we talk about the presence of the Lord in our lives, uh, the very first thing that you notice here in this chapter is that the presence of the Lord in our lives means that we become a blessing regardless of the circumstances of our life. The presence of the Lord in our life means that we become a blessing regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of what we face. Look with me at verses 1 through 6. Chapter 39, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. We see here Joseph finds himself really in a very horrific situation. 
He's been sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. He was in that pit, you'll remember, and he's crying out for mercy. And these very callous brothers who hate him, hate this obnoxious brother who's only been talking about these dreams and loves wearing his coat. They've sold him now to the Ishmaelites. And there he goes down to Egypt and he's sold as a slave. It's important to remember that when Joseph goes down to Egypt, it's not like he's going to look for a better job. He's being sold as a slave. Like Like a cow being sold at an auction. Remember, this is a young man who's probably around 17 years of age. Chained to a block, more than likely stripped completely naked for men to come by and examine him as to whether or not they want to purchase him. And he doesn't know the language. He doesn't even know what they're talking about. All he can read is their eyes, wondering which one of these guys is going to buy me and where am I going to go? Remember, this is the young man who was the father's favorite son. The spoiled little boy with a coat who had grand dreams of all that God was going to do in his life. And now the dreams have hit the dirt. He's humiliated, stripped bare. And no one would have blamed Joseph if at this point he just said, forget it. If he had given up, if he had thrown in the towel, no one would have blamed him if he had protested. No one would have blamed him if he would have sought to poison Potiphar's soup, which is probably what I would have done. What you find in Joseph, and this is the remarkable thing about Joseph as you study it. In fact, it's supernatural and it sets him apart. In Joseph's life, as we move through the narrative, you'll notice within him a deep abiding conviction. And and quite honestly, I don't know where he got it apart from maybe his father and his grandfather and the stories that have been told him. But what you notice is that there's a deep conviction in Joseph's heart that God's ways are perfect. Even when I can't understand it. And regardless of the circumstances, no matter how bleak they might seem, the circumstances cannot stop God from accomplishing what he has determined to do. And because he has this deep conviction, you'll notice in Joseph, there's not a resisting of the circumstances. There's not a fighting of the circumstances. No, he just seeks to make the most of where God has planted him. And he succeeds. In verse 2, he became a very successful man. And it's important to understand How? In what way did he succeed? He didn't succeed by protesting the paganism of Egypt. He didn't succeed by trying to reorient the culture. He didn't succeed by resisting the pagan leadership of Potiphar. The only real opportunity he had to succeed was as a slave. 
And it appears that Joseph has determined in his heart, this is the only opportunity I got, and so I'm going to be the best slave that Potiphar has ever seen. That I can't change the circumstances, but God can change me. And God can use me right where he's planted me. And it says here that Potiphar saw in verse 3. I love this. Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. In other words, Joseph didn't have to go around and tell Potiphar, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but God's with me. Maybe you haven't heard about my dreams and my daddy's coat. Let me tell you about it. You better watch out. You better not mess with me. God's with me. No, he didn't have to tell Potiphar that God was with him. Potiphar saw it. Folks, that is profound. That the primary way in which we influence our our community and the people around us is not by shouting to the rooftops who we are or beating them over the head with a Bible. It's that we live a more excellent life that demonstrates that God is with us and his hand is on us. So Joseph's here just being an excellent slave. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I can only imagine that Potiphar sees this young man in whatever he does, whether it be cleaning the chariot or sweeping the floors. I've had a lot of slaves, but I've never had a guy like him. And for a Gentile man, a pagan man, to say of this slave, God is with him. Oh, that God, or oh, that our culture would say that about us. That wherever we work, wherever we go, that in how we operate and how we live, the people around us would say, I'm not sure. And make no mistake about it, Potiphar didn't agree with Joseph's theology. But he did understand God is with him. And having him around blesses my life and my house. Is that true of you today? That in your workplace, they would say about you? I don't know much about this whole Jesus thing, but I'll tell you this. God is with that guy. God is with that woman. And we are better off as an organization because they're around That was Joseph. If the Lord is with us, we'll be a blessing regardless of our circumstances. Joseph was not primarily trying to change his circumstances. As I said earlier, there's so much about his circumstances that he couldn't change. But he sought to be a blessing in the midst of those circumstances. And the Lord was with him. I thought about this this week. How much of our time is spent either trying to avoid difficult circumstances or get ourselves out of difficult circumstances? I think the thought in our minds is often, well, if, if, if God would just change the circumstances, then I would be more effective at serving him. And listen to me, this text, if it proves anything, is that there's not an ideal circumstance from which you can serve the Lord. There is no perfect circumstance. There's no perfect job. There's no perfect mate. There's no perfect spouse. There's no utopia. The word literally means no place. It doesn't exist this side of glory. And sometimes I think we get in this 
mindset of saying, well, God, if you would just take me out of this situation, if you would take me out of this circumstance. See, the problem with taking you out of the circumstances is, is that wherever you went, you would still be there. And the great deterrent to God doing something great in your life is not your circumstances, it's you. And it's me. And more often than not, God is not going to change our circumstances. He's just going to see fit to change us. And to mold us that he might use us for his glory. Time and time again, that's what we see throughout Scripture. That God brings us into difficult circumstances and situations. And it's not our job to try to change those circumstances, but to live more excellent lives within them that God might change us and use us for his glory. Isn't it amazingly liberating to come to a place of understanding that it's not my job to change the circumstances. It's my job to live faithfully in the midst of them. To bloom wherever God has planted me for his glory. It appears to me that the attitude of Daniel, the attitude of Joseph, the attitude of David was this. I will be who God wants me to be when he wants me to be it. My job is just to be faithful where he's placed me today. You know, maybe you've heard the story of the two lights on the sea. The one light signals and flashes to the other light on the sea, change your course 10 degrees. The other light flashes back to that light and says, you change your course 10 degrees. And the guy flashes to the one light and says, well, I'm a captain. The other light flashes back and says, I'm a seaman first class. Now this guy's mad and he flashes back and says, well, I'm a battleship. And the other guy flashes back and says, well, I'm a lighthouse. And, and that's what where God changed. Listen to me, God ain't changing. And then we say, God changed my circumstance. And what I see in Scripture, God will rarely change the circumstances, but He will change you. And if you let him, he will use you right where you are in ways that you can't begin to possibly imagine. That's the heart of those who live and abide in the presence of God. No matter what you're facing today, what situation you find yourself, our heart ought to be no matter what we're facing, that I can jump over a wall and I can march through an army because God is with me. No matter where God places me. So much drudgery amongst Christians today. Listen, there ought to be no more confident people in the world because God is not limited by your circumstances. And people who know the presence of God are able to be a blessing no matter where they are. The second thing we see is that the presence of the Lord means that not not only am I a blessing in whatever circumstances I find myself, but I am an object of the enemy's attacks. 
Abiding in the presence of God means that you become an object of the enemy's attacks. Look with me at verses 6 through 18, the latter portion of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about after those events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left uh, his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me, and I fled outside. Now, I'm not sure what Potiphar's wife, what her goal was in this. She seems to me to be a very cruel, deceptive woman. I don't know if she's somehow hoping that her and Joseph will run away together and have this nice marriage and have this nice family. I don't know what her goals were, but I know what the goal of Satan was. The goal of Satan in this was to destroy Joseph's life, to destroy Joseph's character, to destroy uh, Joseph's witness. You see, this temptation... As you read this, this is bigger than just one man and one woman. This temptation right here is a reminder of the larger conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It's a reminder of the ongoing battle that God foretold would take place all the way back in Genesis 3.15. You remember that he said that I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. There's going to be this ongoing conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And so this is not just about a woman's desire and a man's struggle. This is about the powers of darkness and the gates of hell seeking to destroy the church that Christ is building. And if Potiphar's wife succeeds and Joseph gives in to temptation, not only does he lose his personal integrity, but he would have lost his place in God's economy. And listen, every time we are tempted sexually or in a multitude of other ways, we must understand that those temptations are not accidental and they're not incidental. Those temptations are a part of a dark and ongoing strategy on the part of Satan, not only to destroy our personal testimony to the presence of God in our lives, but also to destroy the work of God in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in the world. This temptation is bigger than Joseph. And every temptation we face, it's bigger than us. It's about the reputation of Christ. It's about the work of God's kingdom in this world. And there's so much at stake. And the question becomes, how do we resist? I mean, this is the primary text for resisting temptation in all of God's word. This is where you go to. 
And this was a severe and intense temptation. It's obvious from the text. Listen, Joseph is a red-blooded Jewish boy, 17 years old. And Potiphar's wife, an incredibly influential woman, she has the power over Joseph's life to some extent. And Joseph is a long way away from home. He's a long way away from his family, and no one would know. And he's been through a lot. And he's been doing his best, and he's been struggling, and surely he deserves a little pleasure at this moment. And yet Joseph resists. How? How does Joseph resist? Let me give you a few things that I think are so important for us to remember in the midst of temptation. Number one, how did he resist? The fear of God. The fear of God, the primary reason that Joseph gives for not engaging in this immoral activity is in verse 9. He says in verse 9, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph's primary motivation for resisting this temptation is that I can't sin against God. In other words, it doesn't really matter what Egyptian culture says. It doesn't matter what contemporary culture says. It only matters what God says. And if I engage in this activity, it's an act of disobedience towards God. You remember it was David who said, after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this must be. The primary motivation for all of our resisting, we must get back to the fear of God. See, so many individuals, and I just want to shake them and say, do you not fear God? When I talk about the fear of God, I'm not just talking about judgment of God, although that's part of this. It's the fear of losing the presence of God in our lives. It's the fear of losing his hand of blessing. You know, when, when I was in Africa, my first real mission trip, first real opportunity outside the United States, go to Zambia, we're there with a team, but we would sit out in groups, and then we'd go out individually with a translator. And I had this translator named Golden. Couldn't pronounce his name. He was an odd fellow, loved Jesus. But I knew very, very quickly, I had had no idea where I was even at. No cell phone. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And there are animals that I knew very quickly could take me out. I could be left for dead there and nobody would know. I didn't know the language. All I knew is that this strange African man is my only hope. So I didn't let him out of my eyesight. He went to the bathroom. I followed him. He started looking at me really weird. (laughs) But I did not let him get more than 10 feet away from me because I knew if I lose him, I'm dead. They will never find me, and I don't know my way home. That is the fear of God. It's knowing that you are a stranger and a foreign land. And there are forces and there are things out there that will take you down and devour you in an instant. 
And if you get out of eyeshot of the Lord's presence, you will surely die. That's what it means to have the fear of God that I cannot engage in that activity because it would be disobedience to God. And if I do it, I will lose his presence. And I can lose a lot of things, but I can't lose him. Primary motivator is the fear of God. Secondly, decisiveness. Decisiveness. You, you see this, that when Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph, he's immediate in his response. No. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to go back and say, hey, let me search the scriptures and see if there's anything against this. I don't know really where I stand on this whole deal. No, he knows. And it appears to me that Joseph, knowing that he was a stranger in a foreign land, had already made up his mind about certain things that he would not do. That prior to that moment, he had already drawn some lines in the sand that there's places I won't go, things that I don't do, people I won't be with. In fact, if you read the text, he says, I won't, lie, I won't be with her. I'm not going to be around her. He's making every effort to not, he's saying there's some lines I've crossed because I don't even want to be in a position where I would sin against God. But the important thing is that he made up his mind beforehand. Let me just speak to you as young people especially. You need to make up your mind today. Make up your mind today about the places you will not go, the things that you will not do, the people you will not see. Because when the light comes on and the temptation presents itself, it's too late. Business professionals, as you are starting out, what are your convictions? I'm not talking about your opinions. I'm not talking about your preferences. What are your convictions? What are the lines in the sands? What are the things that you will not do? Your opinions and your preferences are things that you will argue for. Your convictions are things that you will die for. And listen to me. You might say, well, if I draw that land, I'll lose my job. Better to lose your job than to lose your character. If I draw that line, I'll lose that friendship. Better to lose that friendship than to lose your character. Well, if I draw that line, everybody's going to think of me as being harsh. Better to be thought harsh and to still have your character and your testimony intact. Make up your mind today. What are the convictions of your life? Joseph and Daniel, if you study their lives, boy, they give on a lot of things. I'll take your name. I'll read your literature. I'll even change some of what I do. But it's obvious that both Joseph and Daniel, prior to the moment, had some deep abiding convictions about some things that they weren't going to do. And boy, if there was ever a day where we better have some convictions. I am so tired of seeing prominent Christian men and women taken down by Satan and ruining the reputation of the gospel today in our world. There's too much at stake. 
draw the lines today. Number three, persistence. It's not enough just to resist once. Joseph Potiphar comes to him every day. And it seems apparent that the appeal grows stronger every day. And you can't just win one battle. Every day you are in a battle. You know, the thought of a lot of people is, well, and I hear this a lot. If God didn't want me to do it, he would remove the temptation and take away the feelings. If God didn't want me to do it, he'd remove the temptation, he'd take away the feelings, and he would fix it. Listen to me. He has fixed it. He wrote a whole book on it. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to free you from the bondage of Satan and sin. You don't have to say yes to sin. The devil didn't make you do it. It's time for us to get serious about holiness in our lives and to fight the good fight of faith. More often than not, he won't take away the temptation, but he will always provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll always provide a way of escape so that you can stand up underneath it. So be careful about blaming God. Temptation comes from our own sinful hearts and our desire to live out our sinful desires in our own sinful ways. You've got to be persistent. It's why every day you need to be on your knees. I know I am. Every day, God, I am a sheep, I am dumb, I am vulnerable, and left to my own devices, I will walk off a cliff. So God, I am pleading with you to enable me and strengthen me to stand up underneath temptation. God, do whatever it takes. Discipline me, correct me, take me out if you have to, but don't let me do anything that would bring shame upon the cross of my Savior Jesus, the church, or my family. Our attitude has to be death before dishonor. Every day. Persistence. And finally, run. (laughs) Extreme situations Call for extreme measures and extreme responses. Joseph knew it was better to lose his coat than his character. Second Timothy 2.22, flee. Immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee. We could take you to all kinds of things. Jesus, you remember what he said? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Pretty graphic picture. But the point 
is incredibly clear. There is nothing worth losing the presence of God in your life. Do whatever it takes. Don't be caught off guard today. The presence of the Lord not only means that you become a blessing, it means you become a target. The devil prowls around today like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Stay close to Jesus. And let me just speak to some of you because even as I talk about these things, you think about the mistakes that you've made in the past. Wherever you've been, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, and sin no more. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The woman caught in adultery, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And he looks up and says, where are your accusers? Doesn't look like you have any. And I'm not one of them either. You know, remember what he says? Go and sin no more. Commit yourself today to faithfulness and to guarding your integrity, knowing that you are an object of the enemy's attacks. Finally, the presence of the Lord in my life means that I continue to look more and more like Christ. Look with me at verses 19 through 23 very quickly. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. You know, the, the interesting thing about Joseph's life is there... Um, there are probably few characters in the Old Testament, few stories in the Old Testament that are more beloved than the story of Joseph. I think if you ask most Christians, tell me one of your favorite Old Testament stories, most people would tell you, boy, I just love that story of Joseph. Why is it that we have such an appeal to Joseph? I think it's because the more you study Joseph's life, the more you see Jesus. Here is a guy at every turn is treated unfairly and unjustly. Talk about injustice today. Well, right here it is in its most blatant form. A guy who did nothing wrong. And yet was sold as a slave. A guy who did nothing but guard his integrity. And he was put in prison. And yet, how did he respond? Do you know what you see in this? Like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. But he kept entrusting himself. See, the real mark of the Lord with us is that we begin to display more and more of his character in our lives as we trust him regardless of what comes our way. 
And guess what with Joseph? God will vindicate him at the right time, the right way, and we'll look more at it in the coming weeks, but God will raise him up to prime minister over all of Egypt. God vindicates his children in his time and in his way. And we trust him. And when we trust him and we're treated unfairly, we demonstrate the character of Christ. You know, John Bunyan, I called him Paul Bunyan in the first service. It ain't the blue ox guy, all right? I messed up there. We got it wrong. John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a great preacher in England, Bedford, England. He was put in prison because he wouldn't, he wouldn't preach as the Anglican church told him he should so he's preaching the gospel and they told him you got to quit preaching <laughs> he said I'm not quitting preaching they put him in jail history tells us that in that jail all he had was a bed and a three-legged stool and it tells us that he took one of the legs of that stool and he turned it into a flute. In jail for 12 years. And when the jailers would come by his cell, guess what they heard? He wasn't in that cell complaining. He wasn't in that cell moaning. He wasn't in that cell protesting. He was praising God. And you know what he turned determined to do? I'm going to make the most of this. And he ended up writing a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Classic Christian text. Second only to the Bible. That has impacted countless lives. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians while he was in jail? Brethren, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard that I am in chains for Christ. How are you doing in your circumstances today? Wherever God has placed you today, Nothing can prevent God from using you today for his glory in ways that you could never imagine. But the choice is yours. Will you resist him or will you live for him? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that You're a God who's not distant, not a God who spoke the world into creation, spun it into existence, and then walked away. You are Emmanuel. You're God with us. We see here in this passage a man that 
it was said of him, not, not just by Christians, but by the Gentiles in his life, that God was with him. God, there, there's some people, maybe they're watching online this morning, maybe they're in this room, and maybe they're wondering, does God care about me? I pray that you would impress upon their hearts that today you are Emmanuel, you're God with us. You're the God who left the glory of heaven, entered into the filth of humanity and died on a cross for our sins so that we could know you, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that no matter where we go today or tomorrow, no matter what circumstance we might face, we can know that the God of all creation is with us and that one day we will be with you forever in heaven. God, if there's anybody that doesn't have that hope of Christ and the presence of God in their life through faith in Jesus, I pray today you would impress upon them the wonder of your love and the cross and the depth of their sin, and I pray that they would run to you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that wherever we find ourselves today in whatever circumstance or situation, we would be a people who abide in your presence and seek to be a blessing. I pray that we would guard our hearts and our integrity against the attacks of the enemy. And I pray that you would use these hard and difficult circumstances to mold us and shape us into the men and women who you desire us to be. Knowing that if you desire to do great things through us, you will use the hard and difficult circumstances of life to change us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.